Well, according to, to one source, there are um, about 1,093,234 high school football players in the United States. Now, about 6.5% of these high school players, or 71,060, will go on to play in college. The drop-off from college to the NFL is even more dramatic. Only about 1.2% of all college-level players will get drafted into the NFL. Even then... Being a successful professional athlete is, is yet another hurdle to tackle. So in, in short, roughly 853 players, that's 0.00075% of high school players will end up making the pros each year, right? Out of an original population of, of about 1.1 million high school athletes. To put that number into perspective, it's about the odds of getting struck by lightning sometime in your life. Well, in the NFL, as of last week, there were four teams left. And so, last Sunday evening, after we got the kids down, I, I sat down to watch the top .0001 of all current football players. And, and to, to, be, to be honest, even though I'm a math major, I'm actually not sure I've done the statistical analysis right here, but bear with me. <laughs> I'm watching the second half of the San Francisco 49ers-Detroit Lions game, and I don't know if you're a football fan, but some of the significance of this game was, was that the winner would go on to play in the Super Bowl. Uh, additionally, the Detroit Lions, who, and I'm sorry if you're a Lions fan, have, have, have been perennial losers. They were, they were having success. They're having success here, right? Success they hadn't seen in decades. Two weeks prior, the Lions win their first playoff game since 1992, more than 30 years. The week prior, immediately last week, the, the Lions won their second playoff game in a season for the first time since 1957, more than 65 years. The Lions were playing the San Francisco 49ers, who feel like perennial contenders, but who were being quarterbacked by Brock Purdy. Now, quarterback position is considered to be perhaps the most important position on the field. That's out of the 22 positions, not including special teams. So there are 32 teams in the NFL. That's 704 total starting positions with only one starting quarterback per team. That's 4.5% of all starting positions in the NFL, which of all of its total players, out of all of those who started high school, those who make it to starting quarterback, that's point zero, it's five zeros. <laughs> zero, 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 four, five percent that make it to become starting quarterbacks. Brock Purdy is part of a very small club. And in 2022, Purdy began the year as, as the third-string quarterback. That's last season. And, and due to injuries and some poor play by, by players ahead of him, he found himself as the starter late last season and led the 49ers to the NFC Championship game last year. 
where they lost. And so now he's back after starting for a full season at perhaps the most important position in the game, and he's trying to make the Super Bowl for the very first time. But if you watched, you know this, the Lions had built a great lead in the first half. I'm sorry, Mike, to relive this. The Lions are up, and quarterback Brock Purdy is trying to lead this second-half comeback. Now, at the time, I'm watching, San Francisco has the ball. They've, they've scored once or twice, and they're trying to drive down the field late in the third quarter to tie the game with a touchdown. On this particular play, NFL quarterback Brock Purdy drops back to pass, and he surveys the field, and, and seeing no one opens, and a huge gap in the middle of the field He begins to run. Brock Purdy takes off up the middle. He gains 25 yards, makes it all the way down inside the five-yard line, setting up what would be a game-tying touchdown, leading them to ultimate victory. And as they do, they, they replayed this particular play over and over after it happened. And and I listened as the commentators describing Brock Purdy said this, and I quote, well, you know, he's not a very athletic guy. (laughs) Exactly. Brock Purdy, the starting quarterback at the premier position for one of the top four NFL teams of the .0000045% of all high school football players, not a very athletic guy. Now, what the commentator meant, of course, was that Brock Purdy is not very fast on his feet when compared to the other people on the field. Not that Brock Purdy is not athletic, but, but, but that's what he said. Context matters, doesn't it? Context matters. Not only in understanding what the commentator was trying to communicate in this single sentence, but even in Purdy's decision to run the ball on this particular play, because what the commentator is also implying is that if Purdy were to try and run the ball regularly, he would not be successful. In fact, that particular play was successful only because the opposing team was certain he wasn't going to run it. Purdy chose his spot contextually, Because context matters. And this is true for us also. In all areas of life, in business, how we conduct ourselves with our families, it informs or should inform our life choices and decisions. And in today's text, we'll see it is also true for Jesus. So I want to invite you to open up the Bibles you brought with you from home, your pew Bibles, or turn in your mobile devices to to Mark chapter 1. We are, after a few weeks, finally arriving at the end of Mark's first chapter. I mentioned that he packs a lot into each passage. And so here we are at verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. 
And then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. And the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. And Jesus answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also. For that is what I came to do. And Jesus went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Did you pay attention to how Jesus chose to act throughout the story? Who Jesus chooses to heal and and when Jesus chooses to heal them? A few things to note about the story. Jesus is healing That's curing physical ailments and addressing physical pain throughout the gospel stories. Raises up the value of our physical well-being. The physical world matters to God. Jesus sets out a model for us that where we can bring relief to physical suffering, we should seek to do so most of the time. Also, Jesus heals on the Sabbath here. Most commentators agree that the first half of today's text happens on the Sabbath. We find Jesus at the home of his mother-in-law, or excuse me, of Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And you'll notice it's not until after sundown that the crowds arrive. So here, as in other places, we find Jesus healing on the Sabbath. That context matters. You know, in other places in the Gospels, this becomes a cause of friction, right? A source of friction between Jesus and the religious leaders. The fact that they don't believe that he's following the rules of their faith. Here, it just happens to be the case that there are no religious leaders around to grouse at him. But Jesus sets this pattern, asserting that he will choose to heal people, to provide comfort to people over and above following some set of rules or interpretations of the rules. And yet, it's also not above everything else. Curing physical ailments, bringing relief to suffering is not always, so to speak, the right play. Because what happens when the disciples later come to Jesus to tell them that that, that more people are looking for him, more people are in need of your healing? Jesus doesn't rush to heal them. He says, actually, it's time to go. In fact, presumably, Jesus could have waited around for others to show up at Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house. But he doesn't. He goes off to pray. This one who has just been healing 
Not by some pattern of, of magic or by applying some healing balm. This, this one who, who heals simply by touch, who seemingly has control over the physical world as only God can, now goes off to talk to God. This text, it raises questions for us. If Jesus is God, how is God talking to God? What what is Jesus doing here? Why does Jesus make the choices that Jesus does? If, If Jesus can heal, if healing clearly matters, then why doesn't Jesus always heal? What do we do with these kinds of questions when Scripture presents them? Do we hurry past them? Do we wish them away? Are we willing to wrestle with them? I was listening to a podcast by former Presbyterian pastor Kerry Newhoff, who, who was interviewing Fuller Seminary professor Kara Powell just this past week. And they were having a conversation about this, how to talk about the uncertainties in the church. And, and their context was, how do we do this as church leaders? But also, you know, how do we do this with, with parents or, or, or when leading young people? What do we do with the hard questions that come to us? There is this ethic that you hear or this, this idea that you, you might hear put in this way, that God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But that's a posture of Christianity. That, that's a conversation ender, isn't it? That doesn't promote dialogue. It doesn't prompt us to dig further. Because I believe in a God that can handle our tough questions. Part of our Presbyterian heritage is to, to be a people that, that want to use our minds to investigate, to ask the hard questions of life. In the podcast, Powell says, I, I've been to 26 grades of school. I've done a lot of school. I have a master's of divinity. I have a PhD in practical theology. I'm a faculty member at Fuller Seminary. And yet the average 12-year-old can ask a question about God that I can't fully answer. Isn't that the truth? And I believe that's the kind of humility that we're called to embrace. Because if God is God, aren't there things that we shouldn't be able to wrap our minds around? And she, she suggests this beautiful approach in handling these questions. Four, four words. I don't know, but. Why doesn't God always heal? I don't know, but. Scripture makes it really clear that God is concerned with the restoration of all things. And, and this life isn't the end. Why is there so much brokenness in the world? I, I, I don't know, but I believe in a God that created everything good and wants to see things good again. I don't know, but. 
In our text today, Jesus' choice to heal is contextual. It's set over and against his mission to preach repentance and the coming of the kingdom of God. When they come to find him, saying that everyone is searching for you, he answers, let us go. Let us go on to the neighboring town so that I may proclaim the message there also. For that is what I came to do. Jesus is really clear on his purpose. And so how do we do the same? How do we, too, learn to keep the main thing, the main thing, to be faithful to whatever it is God has created you for? doesn't mean that that we don't do other good when the opportunities arise, but it does mean that we need to remain focused on our purpose. If the disciples, if it were up to them, they would have pulled Jesus off message. And they would have done it to bring about healing in people, good things, something that's good, that Jesus affirms again and again as good, but that it is not always best. And so the question for us becomes, how do we choose what is best? Right now, given our current context, given our current circumstances, given who God has created us to be, both individually and corporately. And this is challenging. It's an ongoing process of discernment. It's one that we don't answer once and for all. We are reformed and always reforming. In 15 to 20, excuse me, in 15 to 20 years, it won't matter that Brock Purdy still loves football. He'll need to make a career change. And so is it good? Is a certain activity good? Is a certain behavior good? Is a certain opportunity good? It cannot be our guiding question. Is it good cannot be the measuring stick. We need to know, is it best? What is the best thing that we can be doing right now? Because I believe that God has the best in mind for us. But if we fill our lives with simply that which is just good, we will miss the best that God has in store. What are we missing right now? As I mentioned, as a church, we're entering into this process of, of discerning exactly that. What is the best we can do right now? And it's, and it's not for any one person to decide. It's not for Nick to decide or Diane or Chandler or Reed or Steve or any of our staff or singular lay leaders. It's a decision we make as a body. Otherwise, this becomes a church made in my image or in the image of another ministry leader. 
But when we participate collectively, we have the opportunity to discern how the Spirit of God is moving. We have an opportunity to discover the church that God is calling us to be. And so this is a never-ending process. Because we never arrive until the day God's kingdom arrives. What is the best good we can do today? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.